And so, as I said, Jesus didn't just stay in the wilderness, full of the Holy Spirit. He steps back into Galilee and the movement begins. And immediately, these are the patterns of his ministry. Now, another paradigm that you can lay over this in terms of strategy would be uh, something like the four fields, if you've heard of that. So, out of identity comes strategy. And as much as possible, we're, we're looking for those patterns, in G, the recurring patterns in Jesus' ministry uh, in, in both the Gospels and Acts and the Epistles. And then we're also learning from best practice around the world and throughout history of how does God work when with the basis of our identity we go pursuing movements of multiplying disciples and churches to the glory of God. And then, I mean, it's always true that you've got to raise up pioneering leaders who will go to the ends of the earth. It's always true that your methods need to be flexible and adaptable and sustainable. But then actual methods vary over time and place. And they change with the context. So typically identity and strategy, if it's what it should be, is fairly... I don't think we're going to learn some new key principle beyond what we've seen in, uh, in, in the New Testament uh, or we're learning at the moment, okay? But methods change all the time. Now, I, I was run out of town when I said this at some of the previous places, but they were Texans. Um, it might be that one day we use a different gospel tool, tool than the three circles. Now, I, I you know... Don't rush the stage. <laughs> you know, it's a wonderful tool in all sorts of contexts. Not necessarily every context. And typically when, when you see here's a, a tool that God's using, man, this, this must be, you know, in the appendix of the Bible somewhere at least or maybe in the book of Revelation. I don't know. Um, but methods change over time. I uh, interviewed a wonderful couple who are serving in, seeing movements in the north uh, of uh, Ghana. And one of the breakthroughs was uh, the use of mini SD cards. So these are impoverished African villages, 80% illiteracy, and yet every family has access to some sort of phone. And they give these out by the thousands and there are families and churches, they're gathered together to hear the word of God in their language. There are discipleship tools and process. I think they even, you can even play the Jesus film or there's been some in their, their local language. Okay? Now, the movement isn't caused by micro SD cards, but it's one of the adaptive methods that helps to fuel the whole thing. Okay? So these change, and normally what's happening here is we get to him, we'll see more of this soon, but we get up here and we're at the pinnacle of our success outwardly. All the results are there. All of the momentum's there, but we've lost something of who we are. And there's this time lag. And so by the time we get to here, you know, these methods have been locked in and they have become our identity. And the only hope for renewal is to get back to who we are and then express it in a fresh way. That's how you renew movements. It's an innovative return to your heritage, to your identity. So there's, if you want to renew a movement, there's a conservative side. You've got to get back to the life and ministry of Jesus. And then there's a radical side. Well, what does that look like today? Okay. 
let's, uh, let's take you through the movement life cycle and the stages of development. And we'll touch on some case studies in history. The reason we don't always use contemporary case studies of the rise and fall is because you need long periods of time sometimes decades or generations to see the impact of decisions you made 10 years ago how is that working itself out today so we can look even if they're not identical to the sort of thing you're doing today we're going to pull out the Quakers and the you know uh, uh, Francis of Assisi and the Methodists and all sorts of different groups as examples but you can learn from the patterns that you see over time of decisions that were made today having impact down the road and things to avoid and things to do so every movement begins with a birth which is at the same time often a rebirth now Jesus founded something completely new and completely old when he founded his missionary movement because it's not just plucked out of air it's plucked out of the the story of God's the redemptive story throughout the whole Old Testament and you know who knows we're grafted into Israel in one sense we are the new Israel and in one sense we are the renewed Israel so every birth there's always a context and a history because that's how God works but we're going to call it birth and uh, what's going on here well, the example that got my attention was uh, the story of Francis. He's uh, the son of a very wealthy um, merchant. Uh, he's uh, been a soldier of fortune, more just, you know, just for the fun of it, because he's from a wealthy family. Uh, he's been captured, he's been in prison, he had to be ransomed. But, you know, he's just beginning to see through the meaninglessness of, of his whole life. And God is, is, is rattling his cage. This is in the sort of medieval uh, Italy, what was Italy in those days. Um, well, there was no Italy in those. That's another story. Um, and uh, so he's having encounters with God. And often, at the birth or the renewal of something, um, God is unraveling people. There's discontent. They're in the wilderness. And often, it's out of brokenness and the discipline of God that fresh encounters with Him and fresh insights come. So that's why Jesus is in the wilderness. That's why um, Peter is being turned upside down at Cornelius' house. It's why the Lord Jesus, in his love, crept up behind Paul on the Damascus Road and hit him out of the park. Um, and as he's sort of laying face down in the dust eating dirt, um, uh, God is not only bringing salvation, but a fresh vision of what he wants Saul to do. So often, these are, these are hard times. And it was hard for Francis trying to understand, what's God calling me to do? What does this mean? And he hears, you know, restore my house. And so he thinks, well, uh, he starts begging for stone and rebuilding broke, a broken down old uh, Catholic chapel. Because you see, at this stage, the church is rich and prosperous and powerful. And the missionary societies uh, that we have today, they were expressed in Francis' day as monastic orders. They were the missionary bands for a thousand years before the Protestants finally caught up, uh, or more than a thousand years. Um, 
And yet monasticism, monasticism has become rich and powerful. And these are now settled institutions in a world where, believe it or not, in the 12th century, there's a whole shift to the cities. Urbanization is taking place in Europe. It's no longer just going to be an agricultural rural society. And monasticism was great in a rural environment. And uh, all this is going on. Francis is probably unaware of a lot of these things. But God is getting a hold of him by unraveling him. And he, he, he reads this uh, Matthew 10 passage and becomes convicted that we've got to take this message of repentance uh, to, to uh, a fallen church that's far from God as best as they understood the gospel. So there's Francis and he also has this deep, this is Jesus does, a heart for the poor. And he wants to serve them and to meet their needs. So he's borrowed, sort of, one of his father's donkeys. It's a pickup truck in the old days. And um, he's laden it with fine fabrics uh, from his father's warehouse. And he's going to take that and sell it off and give the money to the poor, which is what you should do if... You own those materials, but he didn't own them and he didn't have his father's permission. So his father, Pedro, is furious and he drags him in front of the Bishop of Assisi and, um, to adjudicate. Uh, help me with my wayward son. He, he wants to love the poor and serve Jesus. And the Bishop sympathizes with Francis and says, but you, you, can't, you can't give away stolen goods. And uh, so Francis begins, I don't recommend you do this, but he begins taking off his clothes. And he strips naked, takes that pile of clothes and gives it to his father and renounces his inheritance. He's going to follow Jesus and trust him to provide. And that's what he does. One crazy, weird guy. And within a generation, tens of thousands of men and women are following him are, and are spreading out all over the world as missionaries. Okay? It begins with a wrestle with God, often deep change in the life of the founder or the founding group. And then out of that wilderness and that struggle, the byproduct is the innovative insight, the new thing that God is doing with this drift to the cities and the decline and the corruption of his church. We're going to bring renewal and we're going to, we're going to bring, as best as Francis understood it, the proclamation of the gospel and the call to discipleship. It does start with discontent. Something is wrong and it needs to change. So I can, now I'm going to baptize your holy discontent. Okay? Was Jesus agitated and discontent? Yeah. He wasn't nice about the state of the world or of God's people. He's agitated. And unless you're agitated, nothing changes. Okay? If you camp on agitation, and it's typically us guys who do that, we write blogs and we criticize the church and, um, you know, everything except us uh, comes under, you know, uh, uh, sort of careful anal analysis and, and critique. If you camp on critique, you're going to end up cynical. So you've got to turn the critique and the discontent into an, you know, a vision of what God is doing and often comes as a byproduct of that wrestle with him. So for Jesus, it's the coming of the kingdom and the message of repentance and faith. But it's not enough to have a vision. A movement is born 
when someone commits to action. Because a vision from God without action and commitment is a fantasy. And a lot of movements never get born. It's just a bunch of people critiquing and visioning but never doing anything. So I like in this whole emerging missional conversation, I just keep looking for the stories. Where are the stories? Or if any new book comes out or any whiz-bang model comes out, just where are the stories? Where are we seeing lives transformed by the gospel and people learning to follow the Lord Jesus and gathering in community? Where's that happening? Because critique and vision is nothing without that commitment to action and then that early group begins to form. It's not just an, a single founder, but pretty soon there's a bunch of other crazy people. And typically at this point, there's no proof or evidence of anything, okay? When someone says, prove to me this is work, that it works, okay? You've just found someone who's not a pioneer. Pioneers go on gut instinct. They don't ask, does it work? They ask, is it right? And I'm not even sure, but let's give it a go. Let's see what happens if we dive in and do this. So commitment to action is what kicks us in to the growth phase of a movement. Oh, this is John Wesley. He's had his turmoil. He came to Georgia. Really? He was a missionary in Georgia, and he was a failure. He had a failed um, engagement, I think it was, and failed in his ministry. Uh, he returns to England a broken man. And the Lord says, wow, I think I've got something to work with now. I found myself a failure. <laughs> Someone who's broken before me. Someone who knows their need of me. Somebody who is willing to trust me even when it doesn't work. And his heart is strangely warmed. And then off he goes on his horse. He's going to disciple a nation and restore a fallen church. And so it comes with his commitment to action out of this turmoil. And so off he goes to Bristol because Wesley doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what he's straight. He knows who he is now. The identity piece has shifted. But he's going to learn by doing. And he goes up to Bristol. And here's a man. He's a good Anglican. He died an Anglican. And he goes up to Bristol thinking, for anyone to get saved in any other place than a church building, that would be sin. And he looks at at uh, Whitfield, who's invited him up, needs some help because Whitfield is sharing the gospel with thousands in the open air. And all of a sudden, Wesley says, well, I love the, you know, the rites and the rituals of the Anglican church, but I also see that God is well pleased to work without them. So he loved being an Anglican. But he had an even higher loyalty to the core missionary task. So we might think open-air preaching is something weirdos do on a corner. No, this is television. This is internet. He's touching thousands. Pretty soon, he's preaching to crowds of three or 4,000 in the marketplace, literally the marketplace, in the open fields. Before the coal miners go down the pits, Wesley or the circuit riders that he's training, they're there at 5.30 a.m., because that's when people are around, preaching to thousands. So this is mass communication. So this would be a good idea. You'd probably want to invite John Wesley to do a mission at your church. So they lock the church doors against him. And he comes to his father's church, where his father administered, his father is buried there, um, and he's, uh, you know, it's a homecoming because he'd sort of grown up some of his life at that church and they refuse him entry. 
So he got, this, this is what you should do. Um, you, you go outside the church. <laughs> Paul at least went across the road to, uh, to Jason's house from the synagogue, but he just stands outside the church. He climbs up. It's quite a big edifice. He climbs up on his father's tomb and preaches to thousands outside the church building. So he's, he's getting an innovative insight. You know, the surrender, the identity thing, and now the fresh insight about how the strategy, how are we going to do this thing with abundant gospel sowing. And he says, look, I, I could preach all around the country, but even better, I could start training young men on horseback to crisscross this nation. And he starts training his circuit riders. But you know, he had a... He had a um, he had a, a saying, he said, I will never strike a blow, I will never land a punch unless I can follow it up. So even if he can preach to thousands, he's not going there. Well, he did for a while and it was a failure because people just evaporated. He's not going anywhere to preach to thousands unless he and his circuit riders can organize people into discipleship bands and classes and the Methodist uh, functional equivalent of a church, a society. So everywhere he goes, he didn't consider that people would get converted in the mass crusades. They got converted in discipleship groups. And so he puts to work one in ten Methodists in the movement leading these discipleship groups and these Methodist societies that now are popping up all over the country. And then, so now we've got nine districts of, of Britain and he's got circuit riders across the nation. They're preaching the gospel they're organizing people in disciple-making groups and societies into communities of faith and there's strict discipline. Movements raise the bar. They lower the bar on who can be a leader and they raise the bar on who's a disciple. We do the opposite. So he turns up to, I think it was Bristol, and by the time he left, he kicked out a hundred and something people from the Methodist Society. Imagine doing that. Oh, we're just going to front up here to Raleigh and walk into, I guess you've got a First Baptist, and uh, let's just have a look at your membership role because we're going to prune it a little bit. You know, if, if, if this guy is still beating his wife, and this is what it was like, because you're reaching lost people far from God. It's messy. But if you're still beating your wife, you're out. You're a mission field, not a missionary. If you're still a drunkard, if you're still smuggling, you know, imagine that. So here's a list of people, you know, wife beating, drunkenness, smuggling, you're all out, you can be a mission field. Because this is a disciplined movement. And then every, uh, at, at key points, at least annually, sometimes quarterly, he's pulling in his workers, the circuit riders, uh, to get them to report in, a bit like uh, what some people have experienced as a mid-level, you know, you're reporting in, people are speaking into the, the quality of your, your life and witness and the fruitfulness of your ministry, and you're making a contribution to the development of the whole movement, and you're connecting with one another, then out you go again. And there are different other, what's happening here? It's all about John Wesley here, and it should be, because he's got the call. He's got to embody this thing, even if no one else follows. He's going to do this. But it's not a move, it's a ministry if everything comes back to John Wesley, if everything's controlled by John Wesley. So pretty soon, he pioneers the basic building blocks and methods and strategy of a movement. He embodies the identity, and so God's going to work. He has some tough life crises along the way. And he's laying down, as he goes, 
the building blocks of a movement. It's not all, there is a lot of prayer and worship going on in the middle of the night, okay? But it's also discipline. It's also organization. This sort of torrent of the Holy Spirit is going to be channeled in, in different ways so that we now have a network national movement throughout Great Britain and tens of thousands of people are turning and believing um, and, and serving as a result. So these building blocks are going in place. The circuit riders and the whole movement is learning what God is doing and God is transforming head, heart and hands. And so Wesley as the founder is serving the birth of a movement that eventually no longer needs him. That's the difference between a ministry and a movement. In a ministry, you clutch and hold that thing to the end. In a movement, you make sure people have got the heart and they know what to do on Monday morning and you release authority and responsibility and then you move amongst it just doing quality control checks because you're going to have a mess sooner or later. And this is what John and Charles Wesley are doing. And so a movement takes off and becomes, a, in one sense, it's a movement when we make a commitment here. In another sense, it's a movement when it's no longer, even if he's alive, dependent on the founder. And there's a real danger that the founder is going to want to uh, hold on to control. So the Lord's built-in planned obsolescence. It's called death. <laughs> but it's even better if you're releasing authority and responsibility. Don't do it too soon. Make sure you're living and modeling what this thing's about. But you've got to teach people and build the building blocks uh, of strategy and best practice methods. And then you have a shot at what the organizational dynamics people call prime. This is when the thing takes off and has a life of its own because you know who you are, you know what you do, you know how to do it, and there's still, you know, this is a moving target because you've got to be adapting to your environment all the time or to new contexts. And yet, that's the radical side. And at the same time, you've got to keep returning to your identity, word, spirit, core missionary task. Okay, so you don't just, oh, we've reached it and we're just, now we're going to take off. No, it's a moving target, but it happens. It happens in history. It happened on the U.S. frontier under a guy uh, by the name of Francis Asbury and also under uh, the movements that eventually became the Southern Baptists. But since there's a lot of Southern Baptists in the rooms, I just want to tell you the story of the Methodists and, and maybe some rivalry will provoke you. <laughs> So when Asbury arrives, you know, it's around the time of the Revolutionary War um, and with independence, a lot of the Methodist leaders, pioneers, went back home to England because Wesley was a, a monarchist and he wanted the Methodists to toe the line. And there's a wonderful thing about the, the tyranny of distance, <laughs> that he couldn't control this thing, you know. And Asbury was loyal to John Wesley, but he also know, knew there's something more important with the rights and wrongs of the Revolutionary War. It's the gospel. So I'm not, I'm, I am not a monarchist here in America, or I might as well go home. And there's just a couple of hundred Methodists and just a few leaders. And within, uh, by 1850, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people across uh, the United States and especially on the frontier. And many of those, many of those are new believers. Because the reason your nation has the faith that it has is because of this era up to in the 19th century. 
And it was the Baptists and the Methodists on the U.S. frontier who captured the nation. You know, the Methodists were about 2% of the believing population in the United States in 1776, and they're 34% in 1850. There was one organization more extensive than the Methodists, and that was the U.S. government. Otherwise, it was the Methodists were everywhere. God did this amazing thing just in a generation or two. Everyone's unfrozen. A nation is being born or has just been born. And, you know, at the local level, the Methodists looked just like Baptists, except I guess they weren't Duncan King. I don't know. Um, because the circuit riders were going around proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, organizing people, into disciple-making groups and churches and moving on continually. So it was a circuit. You saw your, your local Methodist circuit right every six or eight weeks. And the rest of the time, it was ordinary people who were building the churches and making the disciples and getting the gospel out in debt. So they, most of the time, they just look like Baptists who... It was six days a week you worked the farm and on the seventh you were a Baptist church planter. That's how it worked. And God did amazing things because the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians typically, and the Congregationals, why would you leave the East Coast when you're paid a professional salary? You have Hebrew and Greek. You have six years of training. You're a professional with a place in society why would you want to go to the frontier? Why? Give up all that money, give up that prestige. And so the Baptists and the Methodists captured the nation. Under Francis Asbury, this is what happens. And John Wesley, his major contribution is he just... I mean, Asbury didn't know him really well, but he just read his writings. He followed his example. He built on the best practice of what we've learned in, in the United Kingdom and then adapted and added some things. These camp meetings, sort of these revivals, they're unique to the United States. Some of it sort of bounced around the world since then. And this multiplying movement took off. It's a wonderful thing. And it's happening around the world today in different places, just like it did then. And it's a lot messier than when we eventually move into maturity. For a little while now, it's going to get depressing, okay? So in maturity, it's not totally bad. I mean, I'm a grandfather. And um, I'm not as crazy as I once was. And, uh, but in maturity, you notice where we are. We're at the peak. We're at the top. The rate of progress is beginning to decline, but we don't know that. We don't notice that. Because we have a place in society. We have institutions that we've built. We have a name to protect. Our leaders are professionals, typically. And down here, we risked everything to see this happen. We didn't have anything, but we risked it. Okay, We laid everything down to see this happen. Up here, man, we've got to protect what we've gained. So let's get some order in here. Let's make sure we don't make mistakes. Let's, hey, this pioneering new churches, that seems a bit risky to me. So how about we come up with the idea of franchising and we'll control the church. In fact, they can't plant a church. They're going to have to be tied to us and we'll tell them what to do. I'm not saying never do multi-site, but it's not a multiplication strategy, addition strategy, and it is safer. But you just cut your R&D arm. And you just excluded 
The craze is on the fringe. That's all right. No place left will find them. George will find them. Okay. So this is all about protecting what we've gained. And we're going to become more formal. I have spent 17 years of my life in one way or another in higher education. But once you require higher Western education before someone can go plant a church or preach the gospel, you're already finished, okay? Or in need of serious renewal. You better have some Pauls. And John Wesley was well-educated and he's, he's a great thinker. But he, just as Paul did, he leveraged all that to mobilize God's ordinary people. Okay, so this is what happens in maturity. You haven't lost your identity, but you're straying from it. In decline, you're losing your identity. Eventually, you start persecuting those people who still have the identity and have been able to stay around. You start squeezing them out. You become even more formal and safe and secure. It's like the difference between here and here was in England, the study came out that 81% um, that of people at different levels would really rather not hear the gospel and some quite antagonistic. And so um, in the declining church's response was, we better be careful. We might make things worse. Okay? The movement guys said, 19%? One in five are ready to hear the gospel. That's millions of people. Let's get out there. <laughs> you know, that's the difference. So in decline, um, we don't have time. I, I looked at the Renaissance popes. <laughs> and they're so isolated from reality. They have a, like a, a bubble around them of wealth and power and prosperity. Um, you know, in fact, they're almost at the death, at the death now. And then way out there, because the breakthroughs always occur on the fringe, never in the center. Way out there on the fringe is this Augustinian monk called Martin Luther. And they have no idea of the revolution that's coming. This is what happened to the dinosaurs. <clears throat> Movements can end up not in death, but decay. I used to say death, and then I discovered that religious organizations are very resilient. <laughs> so if you're in a mainstream, what they use, I call a mainstream or an old stream denomination, you've not only drifted from the gospel, you're now denying it in one way or the other. And you think, well, surely then, if it's based on the life and ministry of Jesus, the thing's going to fall over and die. Well, not necessarily. Because every time you close a church down, and it's typically in the inner city, you win the lottery. You get millions of dollars pumped back into that decaying institution. And you're decaying when you're living on external life support. You know, the bequests and the giving of faithful past generations. And now it's in real estate or maybe those bequests are continuing on. Or, or maybe it's government funding, but it's external life support. You can't generate fresh funds from committed participants, you're in trouble. And you're now no longer drifting. You're denying your heritage. You're, you're persecuting the people who are back here. This is what happens. And an example, of, it's a very disturbing example for us, is the story of the student Christian movement, or some of you, the parallel organization was the student volunteer movement started in the late 1800s as a whole move of God on campuses 
in the UK, here and globally towards world missions. And tens of thousands of people, previously it was sort of like ordinary people who were going, uh, this is in England, to, to the mission field. Now it's the sons and daughters of the very rich and wealthy and powerful are giving it all up. People like C.T. Start giving it all up and they're going to the mission field and tens of thousands did that. Starting in about the 1880s, Dale Moody had a role to play. By the 1920s, they'd begun to lose the plot. Because let's <coughs> widen this thing up and start including groups that don't believe in the deity of Christ, that don't believe in the necessity of the atonement. And maybe we could see that, you know, Christ fulfills all religions and really our mission, in their own words, is to transform the whole of society and the whole world. And so we're going to fight all these social issues but deny the gospel. And eventually key leaders of this movement became the founding leaders of the World Council of Churches. So by the 70s, hey, we're going to see transformation. So let's start funding groups like Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. Didn't that go well? We're going to give money to revolutionary groups. And now <laughs> salvation, kingdom coming, is reinterpreted as being fulfilled by you know, authoritarian and, and repressive ideologies. And this was happening on the campuses. We got in a varsity and eventually Navigators, Campus Crusade and all of that because, but the student Christian movement was what they became. And it lost the gospel, it lost the core missionary task and eventually denied the gospel. So by the, the 1970s, you know, they're just in, in, in bed with... Uh, radical Marxists and Trotskyites and anarchists and all of this. But typically what they're doing is they're throwing their lot in and then they just say, well, why would we be in the student Christian movement when we can actually draw, join the real thing? And it just, you know, at its peak, it would have annual conferences of thousands, you know, like Urbana is perhaps today. You know, now there's just a handful of groups uh, left, I don't know about here, but in, in the UK where it started. So really, and only can take a generation or two and you can jump this whole thing. It doesn't have to be. This is not an inevitability, okay? The general trend is movements eventually do this over time, but God births new things. Um, so just where you are with two or three people, just why, why don't you just redraw that and explain it and just talk about what's an insight that's come out of that. We want you to live with the, de the, the depressing side just for a little bit longer. My, my editor, when we're doing this, she said, this is awful, Steve. This is awful. Okay. Well, we're going to this is America, so we're going to be positive, okay? We're coming back after you've talked for a while and sackcloth and ashes and got afraid that this might happen to you. We'll talk about how God brings renewal and births new things. So in little groups, just talk about what you've heard, redraw and explain briefly this life cycle. Okay. Uh, there's a couple of ways. Um, one is don't, don't assume just because you raise discontent that others will be discontent. You, you can't control their responses. But you can do things like, hey, why don't we just take a walk through the Gospels and Acts and use a grid like, you know, how did Jesus connect with people? How did he bring the Gospel in? How did he make disciples? How did he form community, both Gospels, Acts? Uh, and how did he multiply leaders? Let's just ask those questions questions of the scriptures and allow the word and the spirit to go to work. Um, now, obviously, for someone to be willing to go that journey, they've already got to have a bit of discontent and openness. But at least it's not you grumbling about your parents' church or the mega church or the hopeless organic house church people. You know, it's not the 
the model of church war. It's actually, um, you know, getting back to word, spirit, core missionary task. In, in the scriptures, that's one way to do it. The other way is um, drag them out to where something's happening. And for many people, that because the early adopters just get it by instinct and can't work out why yeah, all those other people don't get it. Well, the way God's wired people is sometimes they do need to see it happening. And so a mission trip or a trip into the harvest or uh, a meeting of new disciples where it's okay to bring someone in and they begin to see what God is doing. But again... Um, Someone said that the same sun that hardens clay melts wax. So for some people, they saw what Jesus was doing and they were hardened. Well, pray for their salvation. Tell them the story of the prodigal son and the peak of that story is Jesus inviting the Pharisees in to come and celebrate what God's doing. So there are ways of doing that. But remember, you know, there were times that God engaged with people who were resistant. Sorry, Jesus engaged with people who were resistant. But a lot of the time, he's just, let's just go do this. Um, and, and let those stories of God's activity warm and speak, speak to heart. So at the end of the day, discontent is, is what agitates you to press into God, to press into the scriptures to be out taking a step of obedience um, so that you're finding answers. Yeah. Well, in the early stages, there does need, it's the control of a founder who's really signed up and is doing and experiencing these things. So Wesley's going to pull his circuit riders in and he's going to inquire into their life, the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit in their lives and, and the effectiveness of their ministry. So he's in charge. Okay, but he's not when, when it takes off because it's been embodied in his life and in the building blocks God's given him and in the lives of the key leaders. When it takes off here in on the U.S. frontier, he's he may not even you know, he's probably not even alive. And yet his life, his ministry, his teachings are still having an impact. So early on, there is, but it's voluntary. You can leave any time you want. You know, it's not a cult, but there's really quite a tight um, control in one sense in terms of word, spirit, mission, and also this is what God's given us to do. So we are going to do ministry this way. There's a fair amount of that, but then it, it takes off because and it's gone beyond the founder. Here... It does begin to disintegrate here. Um, here there is formality and control. Uh, and so we, we, we don't want that work of the Spirit uh, because we're not in charge of it. We don't want groups, you know, uneducated groups just opening up the Scriptures and hearing from God. Uh, so there, there is a control, but um, it's, it's stifling. It's not pursuing word I mean the reason I mean Paul's a great example it's the reason um, Paul can say to the Ephesians you know to the elders in Acts 20 you know I'm, I'm leaving it's the last you'll see of me and by the way you know just remember these things and you read Acts 20 it's it's word spirit and core missionary task he reminds them of in, in his example and what God's done and then he tells them Oh, by the way, trouble's coming, but I'm leaving anyway. You're going to have a hard time of it. There's going to be heresy. There's going to be battles. You know, savage wolves are going to come among you. Well, Paul, why are you leaving? Well, I've got other things to do. Well, what, what are you leaving behind? Well, I'm, I'm leaving um, the memory of my example, the living word of God and the Holy Spirit. So, well, how much control of you? Well, a lot of control if they remember my example and submit to the Word and the Spirit, but it's not Paul's church. It's the Lord Jesus' church. And so he's able to move on from those churches because of his confidence in the Word and the Spirit. You look at the fruit, 
you look, does, does this simple gospel tool, does the training we've provided, um, does it set free people free to minister the gospel and set free the captives and form healthy disciples and churches? So you're looking for that. Um, and uh, ultimately, you, you keep returning to the word, the spirit, the core missionary task, but it's not disembodied. It's not like if we just get identity right, everything else will float. That doesn't happen. Typically, and this is the same for Jesus, I'm going to train these guys in how to enter a town, an unreached town. And there's all those instructions. Now, how do you stop those instructions becoming just a, a dead letter? Okay? Well, Jesus hardly ever obeyed his own instructions. Okay, but he kept to the spirit and pattern of them. So he had his ways and his methods and he trained them in those. I mean, he, those disciples didn't just hear the prodigal son once. They heard it again and, you know, we're going into the new town. What's the, what's the Lord going with today? Prodigal son. Prodigal son, this is the fourth time this week, you know. But he's training them so they know what to do. They know what to say. There are simple reproducing patterns. How do you stop that becoming just an empty thing? Well, that's ultimately an issue of the heart rather than the fact that we have, have some simple empowering methods. Um, you know, it's always right to sit around with the scriptures and, and ask some great questions. Um, but it's not just a program that we press the buttons, you know. And in my own experience, the Lord you know, set me loose to go plant a church. Michelle and I planted a church before some of you were born and it was successful. You know, we did the right things. We did the things that we were trained to do. I learned a lot. And then in the second year, um, it's like the Lord said, okay, Steve, you've run far enough on that. Now I need to go to work on your identity. And he just thought he might shake my life and shake that church plant. And so it's trusting the Lord. You know, the, the tools get me into the harvest because now I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to encounter people an off, early offer of prayer and I've got something to say. That shifts my identity because I find the Lord Jesus in the harvest. Okay? And that's what we're doing for people when we give them simple tools. What I want to do now is uh, just talk about the renewal side. And actually, throughout history, this is sort of how it often looks, this sort of snaky thing happening here. Because even here, as I said before, is often the rebirth of something or the renewal of something. And so how does God work? Somewhere in this whole period here because it increasingly becomes more difficult um, because of all the baggage and the loss of identity but here there's some hope so how does God um, did I is this mics on yeah, great how does God bring renewal and this is the thing to be encouraged by it's a work of God okay it's not we don't fix ourselves here. You know, if you want to know what God's people look like without his word and the spirit, go to, I think it's Ezekiel 38, dry bones. Bones in the desert. They're snow white. They're glistening. Those people are dead. <laughs> Just a bunch of bones out in the wilderness. Until... The word of the Lord, the Holy Spirit brings life. And then they become an army. But it's the Lord. Ezekiel is responding to God. You know, Nehemiah is responding to God. It doesn't start with this incredible leader, Nehemiah. He's just a cupbearer of the king. It begins with God's intervention. And we make our response. So... Here's um, Peter. 
Now, here's Peter's qualifications. I don't know if any of your students, George, are this qualified, but Peter had three years trained by Jesus on the road. I think that looks good on the curriculum vitae. Uh, Peter was an apostle. Peter was at Pentecost where he was filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit and gave leadership to the birth of the first church. Now, we read scripture and Peter writes scripture. Okay? Now, all of those things are fairly impressive. Except it's 10 years since the command to go to the nations has been given. And we're not against going to the nations or incorporating the Gentiles. We just don't know how. And we don't have a strategy and a, convert and a concerted effort to go reach the nations. And so we're in danger of this of remaining a predominantly Jewish, you know, a movement trapped within an exclusive religion with a few proselytes thrown in or converted or God-fearers or whatever it might be and not quite knowing what to do with them. So Peter, like every good uh, visiting speaker, uh, can't help with lunch preparation. He needs to go up to the rooftop of the house in the nice midday sun there and uh, have a snooze, sorry, uh, and pray. <laughs> but he falls asleep while dinner, lunch is being prepared. And down come, you know, it's always three things, three times with Peter. So down comes the unclean animals on the sheet and the command to get up and kill and eat. And Peter's a good kosher boy. He's not going to do that. And he's confused. You see how God is unraveling him. You know, he's encountering God and it's, it doesn't feel all that comfortable. He's getting him ready for the breakthrough, for the innovative insight. And then Peter finds himself at Cornelius' house. This is how you enter someone's house if you're out with people far from God. You, you stand on the, the doorstep there and you say, well, i really not sure if I should be here because you people are unclean. Is it okay if I come in? And then halfway through his gospel message, the spirit comes with power. It's just like one of the uh, college chapel meetings because they all start speaking in tongues. Um, and Peter says, um, you know, well, guys, you better baptize him. This is the real thing. And then he's got to go back to Jerusalem and explain because God's not allowed to do this. You know, they're not circumcised uh, Gentiles. He's not allowed just to save people like that. And, you know, for people who think, you know, up here is unity and harmony because we're not really trying to do anything. We're just protecting what we've gained. Whenever movements are dynamic, you, sparks are going to fly, right? I'm not saying there isn't a unity beyond that, but there's going to be contention and trouble. So Peter's back in Jerusalem trying to explain this is a God thing. And he's relying on the work of the Spirit in that meeting and they're reflecting on the Scriptures and reminding themselves of the core missionary task. So Peter's got to wrestle with God. God's got to wrestle with Peter. Got to wrestle with the leaders and the church of Jerusalem. There's got to be trouble and confusion. And then there needs to be deep change that returns us to our identity, the life and ministry of Jesus. This is how renewal comes. And then there's got to be a realignment. So here's the letter and here's the plan. Now off we go, Paul. And now we align everything around our identity. We work out the strategy. We work out how do we, you know... How do we bring renewal to our structures and our systems? Because God has shaken us. There's been deep change. It's beyond incremental change. It's beyond let's just improve a bit. To It's a shift in who we are, in our identity, not just individually, but as a movement or as a ministry. 
God has totally transformed us now. Let's align everything we do with what he's done. Normally, we're trying to bring renewal by concentrating on the last thing, realigning everything. And it's an awful, awful bureaucratic process. And you get in a few consultants, and there's nothing wrong with consultants, but, you know, it's not enough without the intervention of God, without that period of wandering around confused for a while, without a deep, deep work in us in understanding who we are in Christ and what his ministry is through us. And then we go the realignment. Now, that's order of priority. Sometimes you haven't got one and two, but you go on a mission trip and you're blown away. You've sort of realigned by let's just do something. And it's brought change in your identity. And then you go back, well, now let's realign. Okay, so it's not just waiting for God to do something. Sometimes it's just take a step of obedience. But that's the pattern. Um, and there's both a continuity and a discontinuity. So the continuity is we return to our identity, the life and ministry of Jesus. The discontinuity is now we need to express that in a fresh way. What does that look like today in this context? You know, example for hi from history, I don't know if we've got time for it, maybe a couple of minutes, but an example is the Moravian movement uh, out of uh, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf's estate. I think we refer to it, we tell the story a bit in the book. But there you are, you know, it's 250 years since the Protestant Reformation and we've sort of tinkered around a little bit like <laughs> Peter and the New Testament church before Cornelius. We've tinkered around a bit with missions. Okay, there was some stuff happening. But it, the church is not a missionary movement by any stretch of the imagination. And it's time. You know, and always on the fringe. God brings the breakthroughs on the fringe that impacts the center, if they want. So Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, I think he's in Saxony, um, uh, starts, uh, don't write that down because I could be wrong about, I think it's in, uh, no, no, I'm not going to, just, he's somewhere. Okay. He opens his estate to religious refugees that are fleeing vicious persecution all around Europe and into Russia. And they all come with this ideal of the New Testament church that they've suffered and some have died for. Okay? So it's hell on earth for the next few years. Because if you've been tortured for your vision of the New Testament church, you're not going to sacrifice your vision for his. So there's conflict, there's trouble. It's just awful. And Zinzendorf leaves his mansion on the estate. He builds this village for them and he moves in and starts ministering. And now we're in this turmoil through God's discipline. You know, these people, their lives have been deconstructed. You know, they're religious refugees who have suffered greatly and now they're fighting one another. This is the perfect group of people for God to birth a missionary movement out of because they're just like us. They're just, just like us. And after about two or three years of this, the Holy Spirit comes as they're celebrating the Lord's Supper and their hearts are set on fire with love for the Lord and love for one another. There's reconciliation there's healing, there's forgiveness, there's a 24-7 prayer chain set up that went for 100 years and pretty soon they're going to the ends of the earth. That's how God brings renewal. You've got to be desperate. And it is a work of God, but he involves us in it. And before he sends us to the ends of the world, he does a work in us. It's a wonderful story. You know, this is before William Carey. This is before John Wesley. This is, the, this is the first time that believers have gone to the ends of the earth as families, not just in the monastic or religious orders. Um, so it does happen. And typically, 
while we're trying to do this, we're dealing with some of these issues, okay? Don't think that you're disconnected from where you've come from. That somehow you're going to cut all that and you start with nothing, blank slate. Well, you do to a degree, but, but you know, this image of renewal in Isaiah, I've forgotten which verse it is, but it talks about a green shoot from a blackened stump. And that blackened stump is God's people under his judgment. So all that's left is we've got a burnt out stump. But the green shoot comes from the burnt out stump. Continuity, discontinuity, something new, but it's locked in to what God has been doing down through the ages, even when his people have failed him. He disciplines them. He changed deep change. Not everyone embraces it. And then realignment around word, spirit, and the core missionary task. 